Rachel Borthwick, and welcome back to Out of the Closet and Into the Peace. As I've noted in previous episodes, this podcast aims to mark and celebrate an emerging theological and religious scholarship among religious people who self-identify as queer. In our previous episodes, we've explored what it means to study religion queerly and what it means for queer folk to be liberated religiously. Today, we want to focus on identity reconciliation and understand the ways in which LGBTQ plus people approach the connection between their LGBTQ plus identity and their religion, and explore that there is a multitude of ways to be religiously queer. Today to help me with this conversation is Professor Todd Nicholas Fust. Professor Fust is an assistant professor of sociology at Illinois Wesleyan University. His research interests include religion, politics, identity, and sexuality, with a focus on how culture serves to motivate social moral action. His work has been published in the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion, Critical Research on Religion, and Social Movement Studies. Dr. Fust, thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Fust, I'm wondering, can you tell me a little bit about your story? How did you come to study sociology? Or did you grow up in any faith-based communities? And how did you kind of come to write about the specific intersections of religion and sexuality? So I, yeah, I was I was raised Catholic and I, I you know, my family was not uh my uh, my family was relatively progressive on the issue of sexuality i had lgbt relatives and i remember you know despite the kind of catholic church's official position on it my mom telling me from a young age well you know that's (laughs) that's fine like we're 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 just gonna say it's fine and what actually happened is i Majored in sociology in college, and actually my my main interest in sociology is politics. I, I study social movements. And when I was looking for a dissertation topic, I got interested in the idea of progressive religion because we often talk about religion as a conservative force in American society. And I was kind of interested in the idea of who progressive religious folks are, what they're doing, how they understand issues of importance, you know, given the degree to which we tend to kind of frame religion almost entirely as a conservative force in American society. And through that, I was studying these different progressive communities, progressive religious communities for my dissertation, including um, two LGBT churches in Chicago. And from that, I just found both churches really uh, fascinating. One was a synagogue, one was a um, Catholic uh, organization. I found both churches really fascinating. The people there were really interesting, uh, really wonderful, really both kind of um, welcomed me with open arms. And, and I, I became close to some of the people at these churches. I was there for, for two years each, attending services nearly weekly at both of them. And then I got a, a visiting professor position when I graduated in um, Washington. And I thought that was interesting enough that these, this particular facet of the research was interesting enough that I, I found um, uh, an LGBT identified church out there and began studying that church for, for another about two years going to services regularly. So over four years, I nearly weekly attended services at these different LGBT churches, which initially started as a facet of this wider research on progressive religion, and then sort of took on a life of its own as this became a really interesting corner of it. And I got really fascinated with the stories of the people at these churches, with the theology that they were kind of um, creating with some of, you know, the the, the kind of uh, uh, practices at these churches. One of them, the Catholic Church, every year had this ritual they had kind of created where they had this really big leather bound book where they wrote down the names of people they personally knew 
who had died of AIDS. And every year they took the book out and they read every name. And it was like, we, everyone cried, I cried. And it was like this really profound ritual that happened at this, at this church. And I, I found it really interesting to watch people sacralize these practices and kind of build their own unique religious traditions that sort of integrated LGBTQ history and also integrated faith. And in, I thought really kind of profound ways. Yeah, and you know, you kind of touched on both your work in progressive religion and social movements. I'm wondering if maybe you can outline for our listeners, why do you know we tend to think of social movements or why do social movements tend to characterize LGBTQ plus rights or movements as exclusive from religion? Why do we often think of religion and queer rights as competing forces when we think of social movements? Right. I mean, this is this is based in like some empirical reality, right? Like if you survey, say, evangelical Christians, it turns out that the majority of them are Republicans and are conservative. And if you survey, you know, LGBT persons, it turns out that the majority of them are progressive and that they are more likely, certainly not exclusively, but more likely to be secular or non-religious participating or identify as a religious nun, quote unquote, or spiritual, but not religious than people who are uh, straight. But so I, I think part of what drew me to both these studies, the progressive religion study, and also the LGBT religious kind of community study, is that they are sort of people on the margins of these groups, right? Like, it's, it's so easy to focus on just kind of the, the, the 60, 70, 80%, but the 20% is often very interesting and telling. Um, so I thought, on a personal level, as someone who is myself interested in justice, I tend to think that movements for justice are strongest when they can speak with many voices, when they kind of engage uh, a plurality of life experiences and viewpoints and voices. And therefore, I, I kind of want to make sure that people are aware of, I mean, it kind of came to both these, these lines of research, wanting people to be aware of the experiences of LGBT religious persons, that they are out there, that they have these unique experiences and viewpoints and ideas and theologies and lived experience. And also that progressive religious folks are out there and that they have these kind of ways of speaking and understanding their politics. The, the story I like to tell is uh, there's a really great sociologist of social movements named Deborah Gould. I highly recommend her work. And I saw her speaking at a conference where she was talking about being an activist, a queer activist in, in I, I, I want to say she said the 80s or 90s. I don't remember when she said, but at some point when she was, you know, very young and she was doing some activist work and she um, uh, was part of this uh, LGBTQ activist uh, group and they partnered with a religious community and uh, she said, you know, we're, we're waiting the whole time for them to pull a gotcha on us, like to try to convert us or to try to like somehow like they're infiltrating us. And the whole time it turned up, no, they're just some cool religious folks who believed in the same things we did. And I went up to her afterwards and I was like, out of curiosity, you know, do you mind telling me who the group was? Because it wasn't like a confidential thing. And she said it was one of the groups I studied, actually, um, for the progressive religious work. So to me, it's, it's just, it's, and, and kind of part of her point was like, it's important to realize that there's this diversity of viewpoint, this plurality of experience that we miss when we um, kind of only focus on the most visible people and groups or that we miss when we only focus on kind of the stereotypes of groups. And I think that it's kind of digging into the diversity of voices and the diversity of viewpoints on some of these issues is, is really profoundly important, especially for people who are interested in 
movements for justice and like wanting to kind of use all the languages possible to speak, you know, about those politics and bring in as many people as possible who want to see a more just world. I think, I think it's really important to take all those different viewpoints into consideration. Yeah. And this leads me on to my next question for you or for, you know, in the academic field of sociology or religion, what do you think it means to study religious agency, religious identities, but also religion as a quality of social spaces? So this is something I talk about a little bit in some of the, the work I've done on this. So a, a big thing in the, the sociology of religion is the idea of what we sometimes call lived religion, which is that, you know, you have kind of the theology and you have kind of the official doctrine of a faith, but that often doesn't get down to the level of how people actually live the faith. And this isn't to criticize one or the other. It's to say, this is just how religion is, right? Like um, I mentioned before, right, my, my family... Uh, I, I was Catholic and my mom from a very young age, like told me like, well, we don't believe that, like, <laughs> which is very common for all faiths, right? Like, well, that's not in this house, right? You're sure maybe the, that that's what they say in the Vatican or sure maybe that's what that preacher says or sure maybe that's what this religious authority figure says, but like in our house, we believe X, right? Um, and I think, so I, I think as sociologists, we often try to really unearth through, you know, actually observing practices and communicating with people and, and, and seeing people's religion, kind of religious lives unfold before us, like what the lived role of religion is in people's experiences. So getting this idea of religion as a space, right? So like our identities and practices, more broader than just religion, just in general, are anchored in places, right? So like if you're from a small town, like, you know, the way you live and that's one, the pace of life, the culture, the people, you know, that's going to shape who you are, how you envision yourself, the kinds of things you do on a daily basis. And you move to a real big city and those things will probably change, right? It, it's, it's not guaranteed how they will change, but suddenly you're in a different place with a different culture and meeting new people. So you can think of that with religion too. So um, religion happens not exclusively, but very often in spaces, in churches and congregations, in study groups in you know clubs or whatever's in families so i i think one of the things i was finding was kind of on the one hand this experience of people who some some of the folks i was studying in this lgbt you know religious research they maybe grew up in a very conservative church and then when they realized they were you know a lesbian or whatever they maybe left that church and joined an lgbt identified church and like found their religious identity changing their practices changing they adopted new theologies they understood their connection to god in a different way or they understood their religious practices in a different way or what it meant to be religious differently so on the one hand, you could understand this as like almost a biographical thing, right? Like you go from one community to another and it shapes your practices, it shapes your identity. But even on like a kind of moment to moment level, I think we can think about this. So to give you one example that I think is, is, is pretty funny, um, I've been going to the synagogue, the LGBT synagogue I was studying for a long time. And they had this, in some ways, kind of, kind of traditional service Um there's a lot of older folks in the synagogue, a lot of people who went there had grown up Orthodox. Uh, and then there's a group of young folks in the synagogue who after the service, I didn't find this out until I'd been there a year, after about a year they invited me to this, um, who had essentially after the, 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 the Friday night service, they had what they called the pot Shabbat, where they got together afterwards and smoked weed and talked about theology. 
And I kind of, they kind of pulled me aside. You know, these are people roughly my age. I was, I was like in my twenties and they pulled me aside and they were like, Hey, you know, we do this thing afterwards. We finally, after you've been here, you're decided you're cool enough that we can <laughs> tell you to, to come. So, so I showed up as a whole different atmosphere and like, like I'm, I'm getting this whole new view of these people I had seen. Mostly I had encountered like saying prayers in Hebrew and like, you know, that, that was my experience of them. And then I go here and they're, they're smoking weed and talking these big thoughts about God and like, what if God is like this? So even like at the level of like moment to moment, they like went from one place to another. Like they had this one kind of, you know, religious expression at the service in the synagogue where they're saying like traditional prayers. And that was deeply meaningful to them. I talked to them, I interviewed them, like they really loved that and it was meaningful to them. But then they go like to the other space, to their friend's apartment. And they have this whole different expression of religion that is appropriate in that space, right? And I think a lot of people have that, right? Like you have one way you express your identity in this space and another way you express it in that space. You have one thing you do in this space and then you do in that space. Because like our identities, our practices, our beliefs even, are so profoundly anchored in our social space, our physical space, you know, the people around us who make us feel comfortable being a certain thing or make us feel uncomfortable doing things a certain way, uh, support us in one thing or not another. So I think like when we study religion, it's, it's really important to kind of see it as something that is deeply anchored in our relationships and our social spaces and our physical spaces and where we are where we are in our life, all those things, right? You know, so many people interviewed had these very different kind of like, well, I was like this when I was younger, but now I'm like this. So I think that's all stuff that's really useful to think about for how we approach the study of religion, religious agency, religious identities, if that answers your question. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking a little bit about space and there's often an assumption today that queer religious individuals maybe are in a different space or a different realm than social justice activists or other queer folk Mm -hmm. who maybe don't identify as religious. Either they have to downplay their religion when they're at church or um, downplay downplay their queerness when they're at church or downplay their um, religion when they're in other queer groups. What do you kind of make of that assumption when... So I think that's something that like is, is a wider phenomenon even outside of this, right? Like, you know, we often find that this is kind of a, a larger understanding of identity in sociology, right? Is that we often find that as people move through different spaces, they emphasize some aspects of their identity and they de-emphasize others. Um, in social movement sociology, SNMC called identity salience, right? So like, you know, so when you are in one social space, you might emphasize something about your religion, but in another, you might emphasize something about a hobby you belong to, right? Um, so on the one hand, this is just a thing humans do. But on the other hand, I, th- I think it kind of gets to these, as, as I was saying before, these kind of assumptions that people have about these things, you know, it these ideas are so deeply loaded in our society. Um, Juliana Mason, who's a, a political scientist actually, wrote this book I, I, I recommend to like everyone I know called Uncivil Agreement. One of the arguments she makes in that book is, this is a book about politics. One of the arguments she makes is that identities are increasingly sorted and stacked. So like it used to be that like you could be like being a Democrat or Republican, for example, wasn't as connected to like your job and wasn't as connected to your religion. Like it used to be there were Democrats and Republicans and like all different faiths and all different careers, but increasingly like where you live and what job you have and what denomination you are, whether you're religious at all, all these things are like all tied and bundled together with like your political identity and, and being 
LGBTQ is is a similar kind of thing, right? You there are much you know many more LGBTQ people are Democrat than Republican, are liberal than conservative, are you know uh, we like I said we see more people who are secular who are LGBTQ versus people who are straight. So I think some of what is happening here is that we are very adept at sort of perceiving these bundles out there. Like my, I encounter this my students all the time. Like they don't even have, even if they haven't thought of it, so they have some sense that like, well, religious people are like this and LGBTQ people are like this. So I think some of what we see is almost this reading by people of what, how identities are bundled together. So even if you have no personal evidence for this, like, and I got this a lot from people, right? Like, um, I'm just giving the opposite case. Like one of the, the, the funniest moments of all my research is I was interviewing this guy who was a recent, he was, he was gay and he was at an evangelical, an LGBTQ evangelical church. And he was a relatively recent convert in his like fifties to evangelicalism. And I, I never would have assumed in a million years that I would be the first person to say this to someone. But I mentioned something like that. I was like, well, what do you make of like evangelicals being associated with like being anti LGBTQ? And he was like, well, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, and I, I'm trying to explain this. And I, I almost couldn't understand what was going on. And finally, I realized he had never heard this. He had, he just, he, he was a guy who's just kind of blissfully unaware. He didn't pay attention to news. He was secular his whole life. And he had just recently kind of discovered Christianity and converted. And he was like, in, in the interview, he's like, well, that's really mean. Why are people like that? He was the only person I encountered who this was new to, right? Like everyone else was giving me these stories that were like, well, you know, it's like this and it's like that. But if I want to take a different case, I, I think a thing that's important to understand about this is that these bundles are not natural or inevitable. And to give you a, 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 an almost the opposite case, one that really surprised me is I was interviewing an older man, he was late 60s, early 70s, at um, the Catholic Church I was, I was studying, the LGBT Catholic group. And he was telling me this story about going to like the, the gay kind of mass at his Catholic church in the seventies when they had that on Sunday, they had a gay mass. And he said, and I, it took me weeks to go in, I would go up to the door and then I'd turn around and walk away or I'd walk by and I'd look in and I'd refuse to go in. And I kind of boarded out cause I'm, I'm my age. I'm much younger than he was. And I boarded out. Well, is that because it was Catholic and you were afraid that like, this was some kind of trap, right? <laughs> like that aren't Catholics supposed to be anti? And he's like, no, I, I didn't know that at all. Like it was because it was gay and it was the seventies. Like I was, he's like literally the fear I had is my boss would like see me and somehow know I was going to the gay mass or like somehow like a person I knew in my life would see me. He's like, I'd lose my job or I'd lose my friends or my parents would find out. He's like, the fact that it was Catholic was the best part. He's like, cause I was raised Catholic. The Catholic church was my haven. It was my home. So he's like, I wanted to go because it was the gay mass. I was afraid of the other stuff. I was afraid of like losing my job. So like all these things are socially contingent, right? Like, you know, in the seventies, this guy had no sense that Catholicism could be or should be anti-gay his sense was that the rest of the world was anti-gay right like his boss was anti-gay but catholicism was his safe space so i think it's really important to realize that the the way we understand these bundles of identity and belief now are not inevitable and are not somehow unmutable right so they they have changed they've been different in the past and they will be different in the future so i think if you know people don't like them it's worth trying to undo those bundles and, and, and rethink those bundles. So I do think it's this is part of what I was getting at. You know, I, I, if you are a 
you know, religious person who believes in social justice, you're an LGBT person who's religious, like, I hope this is a thing that people can feel comfortable making their voice heard about because I, I, I do believe hopefully in deconstructing some of these, these bundles. And I, I hope my, if, if my research contributes to anything that hopefully contributes to that a bit. Yeah, um, we're talking about your work and we're talking about identity. I have to ask, can you maybe parse out for a little bit for our listeners, listeners about identity reconciliation? Um, you talk about that in your work. Yeah, so this emerges out of um, an article I did a couple of years ago in uh, JSSR, the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion, which is a journal um, publishes a lot of sociology of religion. And this was the main piece that kind of emerged out of this research on LGBTQ identified uh, religious groups. And there's been a lot of work on LGBTQ religious persons. And historically, a lot of it has been about what I'm calling identity reconciliation, by which I mean this assumption that because we perceive religion as sort of an anti-gay or anti-LGBTQ force in our society, that gay people, LGBTQ people who are religious must inherently reconcile their religion and their LGBTQ identity, right? So that these two things don't go together and therefore they have to do like work to push them together. And it's almost seen as like a problem that has to be answered. And there's a lot of work that looked into this. And I understand that like a lot of this work was being done in the eighties or even the nineties. And, you know, when I think that was a more baseline assumption for lots of people, I was doing this research kind of in the late 20 aughts, early 20 teens. And I was encountering a lot of folks who weren't saying this. I encountered, so I, I kind of separated the people I interviewed in these communities and the people I talked to into three groups. And I called the first one the reconcilers, which is kind of this traditional view, but it was actually the smallest group. I only encountered like three or so people across all these groups who said, I really struggled with this, like personally struggled with it. So like one uh, woman was named Sarah and she was at the, the synagogue I studied and she, uh, these are pseudonyms, by the way, her name was Sarah and she was raised Orthodox and she was telling me, you know, I, I would pray every night for God to make me wake up and be a boy. She's like, I just, I literally every night crying was praying like, God, can you just make me into a boy so when I wake up, I can, I can go date a woman and marry a woman because she's like, I knew I was only attracted to women. And it was a real like hard thing for her. She's like, and, and she actually left Judaism. Like that was her initial response was she was like, I guess I can't be Jewish and be a lesbian. And she's like, I, I am this, so I can't be that. And she had this really funny story about just like offhandedly mentioning to this, to someone in a grocery store at like 2 a.m. And they're like, there's a, there's a an LGBTQ synagogue. It's like literally right over there. And she's like, wait, what? So she went to that synagogue and like slowly kind of like rediscovered her Judaism, you know, and, and very, very happily, you know, at the synagogue, but she really, and a couple other people really struggled with it. Then I had a group I called the selectives, who are the people who didn't personally have a problem with it, but recognized that others in their life or their social world might. So like one example of this is a woman named Karen, who I was interviewing, was at the um, evangelical community I was studying, who she herself was like, I'm a lesbian, I'm evangelical, that's cool, I got no problem with this, I think perfectly good but her family was very conservative and actually um when they found out they actually did kick her out of the house um and they found out an accident it was a, it was a whole convoluted story for she didn't actually want to tell them uh so these were folks who 
didn't have a personal problem, but recognized that there were certain spaces that they wanted to participate in their family or a church or something or some religious group or something like that, where they felt the need to minimize one identity or another, as you're, as you're kind of mentioning here. And then the last one that was a group I called integrators, who were people who saw their LGBTQ identity and their religion almost as, as either, either as having no conflict or in some cases as complementary as like actually like relying on each other. So to give you an example of this, I was another one of those moments where like I'm interviewing this person, I'm like wrecked crying because they had such a, a, a profound story. Uh, it was this uh, transgender, uh, queer transgender man named John at this evangelical church I'm studying. And John had this really fantastic story where he was saying, you know, I grew up, I'm, I'm, I'm a, he came from like a conservative, like four square church kind of Bible believing Southern church effectively, right? And he was like, and that's what I need. Like, that's my religion. My, my dad was a preacher. And I asked like, did they, your family have a problem with you being LGBTQ? And he was like, man, just, <laughs> no, I'm close with my parents. Like it's never been a thing. And on top of that, he had this story, I was kind of pushing him on them saying like, well, you know, obviously other people in kind of conservative faith traditions feel so he's like, well, and the story was he had gotten arrested for a crime he didn't commit and he was in jail and like waiting trial effectively. And he was very poor and he couldn't make bail and he was convinced he was gonna go to jail for this crime. And he attempted suicide. And it just so happened that that day the guard had to go home early and did his rounds like 15 minutes early and found John and he saved John's life. And John was like, and I'm like in the hospital recuperating from, you know, my self harm. And I got acquitted like in the hospital. They like, they essentially found the person who actually did it. And I get this, this message like, Hey, you're, you're, you're free. We, we were wrong. You were wrongly arrested. And he's like, and I remember like, he's like, I, I lived I said, I was at the deep, absolute lowest point in my life. And not only did I, I live, but I also got my freedom all in like one fell soup. And he's like, and I just felt like it was God telling me like, you, like I, I've got you, I'm, I've got your back. We're, we're, you're, you're in the good. He's like, and the way he said, he's like, I just can't believe that God would pull me through all those hardships and then be like, but you're wrong to be trans. And he was like, so I, I found this church. It's this like really, it's this evangelical church. He liked the preaching, the preaching like fulfilled his needs. So he, he not only saw like, you know, his religion and his, his LGBTQ identity as like, just not in contradiction. He almost saw them as, as like relying on each other, right? Like, like, like God spoke to him through the events of his life to kind of give him approval. And I saw, I, I talked to a number of people who kind of had these stories, like John's is very dramatic, but had similar stories that were like, well, you know, I, you know, I had this experience and that led me to think like, that like, I am in the right about this, you know, that God is speaking to me or that all those other people, the ones who say you can't be like this are the ones who are in the wrong. So for a lot of folks I talked to, there wasn't really this question of needing to reconcile their identity or needing to, you know, having this moment of like, you know, can I really be religious and whatever? It was almost the opposite. It was like they, from a young age, many of them were saying, just felt like these two parts of their identity belonged to them. And anyone who didn't agree with that was wrong, that <laughs> those are the people who were wrong. So, you know, I, part of what I was trying to indicate with this is that there's this wide diversity of experience between people's experience of their like LGBTQ identity and their religious identity, everything from, wow, how can I do this? You know, this is really hard. I don't think these things go together. How can I find a way to, to kind of be both these things? Can I find a way to be both these things? 
all the way to people who are like, yeah, this is, this is who I am. And not only do these things, not only these things, not intention, but they complement each other. Like I am a better Christian because I am LGBTQ. I'm a better LGBTQ person because I am Christian, whatever it is. Right. So I, I think there's a really wide breadth of experience there and, and, and kind of, you know, ways that people approach the intersection of these two identities that I found. Yeah, and when I think about the last 20 years of queer religious scholarship, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, maybe you can touch on a little bit, you talk about your dissertation in undergrad and, you know, the work that you're doing now. Why do you think the intersections of queer studies and religion sociology have been notoriously difficult and understudied until quite recently? And, you know, what are some implications you think of your work or any queer religious work in sociology, religious studies? What are the implications of that for the study of religion and theology? I mean, I, I, so one thing that I think you tend to see is there's a sort of, I, I think some of it gets to a lot of people enter the study of sexuality because they are either themselves LGBTQ or in some, you know, pe people tend to do me search, right? Like people study religion because they were raised religious or they are religious or they have an ax to grind about religion. So, you know, people often study things that are, are meaningful personally to them. So I, I do think particularly, because I don't want to minimize that lots of LGBTQ people have been hurt by the church writ large, right? I mean, we, we all know this. So I think there are people who enter into the study of sexuality and that is like the experiences they might have personally had with religion, right? I've, I've met people in, 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 you know, the sociology of sexuality who kind of like, like give me that look when I tell them what I study and are often surprised when I say, yeah, let me like, I, I hung out at this queer synagogue for two years and everyone was really cool. <laughs> like they're, it's whatever you're picturing, I, I promise you, it's not that. And, you know, that. So I, I, I think that there's a sort of like, you know, and, and, and once again, like I said, some people enter into the study of religion because they are themselves religious. So I think if people are bringing into these subfields, some of the stereotypes we have about these things more broadly, right, it's that these things don't go together or these things shouldn't go together even, it's going to be reflected in the scholarship, right? So I, I, I think, I mean, just in general to me, one of the things I think is important to do in you know academic study is to try to look for those spaces where it's like there's that kind of missing piece of like things that shouldn't go together but they do right like any anything you can name like someone out there is doing so you know if, if 80 percent of you know evangelical christians are conservative which is what we tend to find what about that 20%? Like, like what study them? Like, what, what are they doing? What's up with them? How did they become who they are? And if, you know, lots of LGBTQ people are non-religious or secular, like, let's look at that percentage that, that aren't. And obviously, you know, there, some are going to church, right? So I think there's always something important in sort of looking at the margins and going like, okay, sure, 70, 80, 90% of people are this, but that 10% might be really interesting or tell us something really profound. Um, so I think in any sort of like discipline, it's, it's in any sort of area of study, like, you know, it can be very easy to study the 90% and, 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 and even fall into the stereotype of saying the 90% is everyone when you kind of miss that the, the people in that 10% are often very interesting and are often very desperate to tell their story, right? I mean, like I, I really encountered when I was doing this, like people saying like, you know, wow, I, I, we, we, like we've been trying to get this sort of attention 
forever, right? We've been, we, we march in the pride parade and, we, you know, we, we, we want people to pay attention to us. So sure. To write, <laughs> go write your article. Cause you know, we, we want people to know we're out here and that we exist. We've been trying to get attention. So, you know, figuring out where those, those groups that are sort of, you know, hidden from the light a little bit, or that are the smaller groups or that are the more marginalized groups, I, I think, and, 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 and allowing that to kind of guide our research and allow us to sort of break down some of the dichotomies and the boundaries, I think is a really useful academic project. Quite often or more than often, um, when we think about secularism, we think about liberation and those two things we connect together a lot. But when we do that, or if we think about queer liberation and connect that with secularism, what we miss is religious queer liberation. And, you know, the spaces that that takes up when we think about, you know, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence in California, or we think about the Hedras in Northern India or the United Church of North Carolina who were important in gay marriage laws in North Carolina themselves. I'm wondering if you can kind of like talk about in the span of your career, maybe what is the relationship between social change and religious movements or how have you seen that changed over time? I think this, it's funny because like I have like, uh, I often have friends who make these comments to me that I, I think are very funny, which are kind of like, you know, like, like, like very progressive friends who are also very secular. And they'll, they'll, like, when a friend I was talking to once, he was kind of saying, like, well, you know, religion has always been this kind of force for oppression. And in the same breath, we'll kind of talk about like the civil rights movement. And it's like, they were, they were all pastors, like, <laughs> you know, civil rights movement was led by clergy, right? And I think we, we almost do this weird sort of erasure of of history when we kind of take the the, the like I said this kind of whole thing it's always a moving target right whatever the 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 view of it is now where we say well religion is conservative right now that there's there's a lot of that but it always hasn't been right there's been a lot of abolitionists were religious and clergy the 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 social gospel was religious. Uh, the civil rights movement was led by the black church. The peace movement and the anti-nuclear movements were led by you know Quakers and things like that. So liberation is almost inherently individualistic in the sense that like my liberation doesn't look like your liberation and doesn't look like someone else's liberation. So like I would argue that we have to kind of understand liberation as having a whole bunch of different pathways, right? Like if you are a person who is profoundly religious, like your liberation on some level must involve your spirituality. And if you're a person who is profoundly secular, then your liberation can't involve like, you know, and and spirituality might be a, a, a kind of oppression. So going back to this like kind of radical pluralism, like I think we have to recognize that people will have these sorts of different pathways to liberation and the the more we embrace that the more we allow as many people as possible hopefully to kind of achieve some sort of liberation in their own lives and liberation as as groups um so yeah i think that's 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 an important kind of perspective to think about it through right yeah and I'm just kind of thinking like how, as you know, a scholar of sociology who, you know, works in sociology of religion, how do like we move forward on creating an approach um, to lift religion that accounts for networks of power that exist in race, gender, um, socioeconomic status and other identities that meet at the intersections of religion and sexuality. 
And what I really mean by this is that more than often when we do work in religious studies or we focus on religious queer people, we often focus on white, gay, religious right. men. And I'm thinking just how do we move away from that or how do we center the voices of those who have not been told before? So like one thing that I often think is important to realize is that even going to like my typology there, like reconciler selectives and integrators, like that can't be everyone, right? Like, um, one, so, so to give you an example, like one thing that my students are often fascinated by and that kind of is, is like the idea that, you know, I, I have students often who are young, who are often white, not always, but often um, many who are LGBTQ. Uh, and I was teaching a youth subcultures class last semester, which is my favorite classes to teach. And we were reading this, piece on black gay men who essentially weren't out in the way that like it's normally understood but also weren't mad about it like 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 the whole point of the piece is like it was just kind of like you know whatever like i go to church i have my family and then like i have my boyfriend but like this is just my life and like it, they weren't seeing it as a problem and it was really hard to get my students to like conceptualize this is not a problem. Like they, they, they kept people, these people must come out. And it was like, well, but like, why? Like, do they need to come out? Like he's, he, this guy that is being interviewed because he's happy. He seems fine. Like you're the one with the problem. So I think going once again to this kind of plurality, I think like part of what we have to think about is what, you know, liberation looks like to one person or one group is not what it looks like to another and that that even i hopefully hopefully challenges even our assumptions about you know lgbtq identity coming out um secularism religion right like that like there's going to there's inherently going to be a radical plurality of ways that people are these different identities and embrace and embody and live out these different identities there's no one size fits all. So I think on some level, even, you know, like a way to, to me to always approach this, going back to the idea of like looking at, at people at the margins is like, you know, and this, this is a problem in my work, right? A problem in my work is that because I was going to LGBTQ churches, I could only get the people who were going to LGBTQ churches, which was largely going to be people who had thought about this, who were out, but there are LGBTQ people in mainstream churches as well and they have a story to tell that's probably very different from the story of the people i was studying there are people who engage in say same-sex sexual activity relationships but don't identify in any meaningful way as lgbtq um there are you know there are even you know there are people who are of course lgbtq and religious and celibate so like there are clergy who are lgbt so like there's so many different ways that we can approach this and i think that trying to be creative about how we enter into some of these studies, right? That it can't just be what I did. It can't just all be studying people in churches, in the LGBTQ identified churches, but also studying, you know, all, all the possible spaces where this could be happening. And then telling all those stories, I think is a step to recognizing the kind of what you're talking about, the kind of intersectionality of this, right? That like, you know, and, and even part of I mean, that was part of what I was trying to get at period was that like for some folks like they hadn't thought of this or for some folks things that that we assume are a big deal aren't a big deal or for some folks th things that we assume should be one way haven't been that way in their life so I think that the more of that we can uncover and recognize and, and kind of document and theorize on 
the more we really can understand the diversity and plurality of human experience and, and, and the experience of LGBTQ persons, of religious people, uh, and of, of, of people of all, kind of all different backgrounds. Yeah, and Professor, my last question to you, you know, if we were stuck in an elevator for five minutes and you had to kind of give me your take on your scholarship or something about sociology of religion, queer studies, queer movements, queer religious movements, what would that be? Oh, that's a really good one. Wow, that's good. I think, so right now, I, I think the thing I would say, you know, if you asked me five years ago, it'd be different, but right now I'm writing a book on power and uh, it's setting, in, I, I looked at environmental movements and I'm working on this book on, on power about them. And I think the thing I would say is that it's always bigger than you think it is. Like the thing that I am, have been fascinated by in doing this research is that there's all these studies of power that I'm trying to synthesize for this. And a lot of them focus on one aspect of power. So they focus on, well, you have the structural power, right? There's a structure of society and that shapes power, right? So these dominant groups, and they have money and they have status and they have you know, positionality and that's how power works. And there's other people who kind of talk about power in the moment, like power as an active because you have an office or because you have a big personality or whatever it is. And other people who talk about power as like being about like your social networks or being about whatever it is and in studying these two successful environmentalist movements that both achieved their aims it's kind of all <laughs> it's like the, the problem is it's, it's all these things right so trying to like develop a model that takes it all into account i think this kind of gets at your last question too right like the world is incredibly complicated and human experience is incredibly complicated and like when you try to tell a story, you have to leave some things out. So the, the, the more we can realize is speaking into everyone's story and speaking into all social events and occurrences and, and kind of happenings, I think the, the, the more accurate our understandings and representations are. Professor Fust, thank you so much for your time. 